Welcome to the C3V podcast. Our text um, can be illustrated by a, a, a story I've picked up off the internet, and um, it's an anecdotal story. It's not a true one, okay? It's not a true one. But it's told of a time when, um, uh, at the outcome of a great sea battle in England, um, the, the message to convey how the battle was going uh, was conveyed by semaphore. You know those guys with the little flag? That, you know, if you're a Girl Scout, you'll know what it was all about. <coughs> I said a Girl Scout, didn't I? Uh, can I have that water bottle there, love? Otherwise, I might slip over to the communion wine and after last night's party, it might be. Might go in all directions, you know. Thanks, love. I'll do it. I'll do it, love. I can do it. Oh, here we go. Oh, for the days when the pastor had a cup of water on the seat. Anyway, so, <laughs> um, so the message gets conveyed from the battle um, to the southern coast of England to Portsmouth uh, by uh, semaphore flags, and then hopefully it gets then conveyed up to London through a series of uh, semaphore masts to Admiralty head- Headquarters in London. <clears throat> and uh, so the, on this particular um, day of, of battle uh, off the coast, uh, southern coast of England, uh, the, semaphore, the semaphore flags were giving out this message, uh, E-N-G-L-A-N-D, England, D-E-F-E-A-T-E-D, defeated. And as if on cue, a gloomy fog came up off the English Channel and obscured the message completely. And with those words, England defeated, a pall of doom settled um, across the uh, Portsmouth as they received the message and relayed it up to uh, Admiralty headquarters in London. And the nation was beginning to believe that the Royal Naval uh, uh, Fleet had fallen to the invasion forces and a pall of gloom worse than the fog settled over England. But when the fog lifted, the message appeared in its entirety to read, England defeated the enemy. The enemy. Oh, I'm glad you got my point. Anyway, <clears throat> so of course the gloom shifted, the fog lifted, and there was dancing in the streets, okay? Um, our text is kind of the same story. Because on crucifixion day, the signal was, we got him. He's defeated. On crucifixion day, the signal appeared, Jesus defeated. But on resurrection day, and then in the ascension, and then the exaltation, in other words, he came out of the grave, he went up to the Father, and he standing at the right hand of God. So the message changed from the half message, Jesus defeated, to Jesus defeated the enemy. Now, Peter, he's, he's wanting to encourage the faithful in giving us his text that we've been reading. Peter himself, if you go into verse 14 of chapter 1, he says, the Lord's shown me that my time has come and that I will be facing a death that he's already revealed to me. 
So Peter was facing down his own martyrdom. And yet, in facing down his own martyrdom, he's encouraging the faithful, the non-quitters, you know, the, the people who are in the, uh, the long obedience in the same direction folk. He's, he's encouraging them with an assurance that Jesus, um, you know, he's not just the, get this, he's not just the last man standing Jesus, you know. Um, so let's do what he did and go to the lions gratefully that uh, we'll be saved in the end. You know, he's not just the last man standing, Jesus, but he's the lamb standing at God's right hand on our behalf. Now, I, I just got to point you back to, to Glenn's message last week. You know, get, you got to get the full message, the semaphore. You know? uh, uh, Glenn read from Revelation 5 verse 6. He says, so I looked and there surrounded by throne animals and elders. I, this is, I just love Eugene Peterson. So I looked and there surrounded by throne animals and elders. It sounds like our dinner table. Uh, get it, getting on with it. Um, surrounded by throne animals and elders was a lamb slaughtered but standing tall. You remember Glenn's message last week about the lamb that stands? The slain lamb, as though he'd been slaughtered, but he's standing at God's right hand on our behalf. Uh, so our text that we've read this morning ends with this. Jesus has the last word on everything and everyone. He's standing right alongside God. And what he says goes. You see, at the cross, Jesus had not lost the plot. In fact, with all that was happening in that hour, that gloomy, desperate hour, and the whole world plunged into darkness as he cried out, I give up. It's finished. I yield my spirit. In the moment of death, it would have seemed the devil triumphed. In the moment of death, at least on that pole, that semaphore pole, it would seem the enemy has won. Jesus is defeated. But Jesus had not lost the plot. How many times have I said that to us over the months of pandemic and all that we've faced down? Jesus had not lost the plot. In fact, the plot thickened. The plick thottens. I've got to get you to remember this. But the plot thickened in, in all that anguish, in all that gloom, in the darkness that befell the whole earth in that moment when he cried out. The plot thickened. He hadn't lost the plot. And through his suffering, there was a vindication coming. You see, the vindication that came was in actual fact of himself. Because the journey that he had undertaken as God to become one of us, that we're celebrating in the season of Christmas, of course, led him to the cross. And what should have been, you know, in all natural understanding, if God would do that, that he would come in human flesh and be born among us, it should have just gone on to be 
ultimate celebration that God is living among us and we can go and visit him in person kind of thing, you know, in, in the flesh. It, it, it should have been the cause for the whole earth to have great joy. And indeed it was. That's what the angels were singing, joy to the world. But there's this other part to the story, and it's this. It's the cross. But the vindication of Jesus is that he rose again, that the journey continued through the cross, that on the other side of the cross, there was the resurrection. There was his ascension. There was his exaltation. And the cross was not the last word. And so it was the vindication of God, that God's plan that he had always said he would do. From the moment sin entered the world, he says, woman, from your seed, we're going to tread on the serpent's head. And there began this coded message that I'm going to do something to turn this fall around. But it's going to be done through the seed of a woman, through a human agency, and yet it's the seed of a woman, not the seed of man in the way that it's spoken. Because in actual fact, Jesus was not Joseph's son. He was God's son. This is, this is the Christmas story coming out as we're coming to the communion this morning. He's the lamb standing on God's right hand on our behalf. And what he says goes. And that's his vindication of his journey, his resurrection, his ex uh, ascension, his exaltation. But here's the big point. I'm, I'm sort of slowing up and laboring, not laboring because I'm struggling. I'm wanting to convey. I'm wanting you to get this. But his victory over sin you know this so well. The familiarity kills our joy sometimes because we go, oh yeah, I learned that in Sunday school. But his victory over sin, devil, and death is the vindication of the faith and faithfulness of the faithful. Well, that went over like a lead balloon, didn't it? Well, it's just as simple. It's not difficult, but that's how familiar it is to us. Just as he rose again, revealed himself to his disciples and around the place in eight different circumstances in the New Testament where he is spoken of in a post-resurrection verification that he had risen from the dead, that he wasn't a ghost, then he gets to ascend, he departs, and then we read that John has vision of him as Glenn preached last week, and there he is, the lamb that was slain is standing at the right hand of God. And now we've got it that Peter's saying exactly the same thing. He's up there, he suffered, he died, the righteous for the unrighteous, but he's standing and he's got the last word. And in his vindication, now I'm coming back to that point that you just went and looked at me with starey glassed eyes. I love you people. I'm not rebuking you. Rebuking, not at all. But here's the point. His victory over sin, 
devil and death is the vindication of the faith and faithfulness of the faithful. You're believing in something that's real, that does happen, did happen, and still happens. He's still standing on your and my behalf. Oh, come on. And this needs to be clearly received because it's the counter when any, forgive me, I'm not even being naughty, but when any fogged up fatalistic res- <laughs> nearly was resignation, when any fogged up fatalistic resignation says, it's all over, I can't go on. When any cloud of fog comes across your semaphore message and it's only half the message you've got, you know, you, okay, if you want to be a martyr, go ahead and be a martyr. But I want to tell you something about the martyrs of Scripture. They didn't choose to be a martyr. It came upon them. They chose to live. They chose to live. They chose to live in the victory of Christ. They chose to live facing down and staring down enormous odds, persecution, uh, disenfranchisement from their own people, you know, rejection. They chose to live this way, and yes, they chose to surrender whenever they were taken into the Colosseums and they were martyred. But the martyrdom wasn't like, I'm going to be a martyr, go blow myself up. It came upon them, and in that moment there was faith. I'm not preaching martyrdom this morning, but I am making a point, very important point. The, the apostles spoke and lived, even though Peter did know he was going to be martyred. He spoke and preached a message that said to us, keep going. He's still the victor, and he's in the circumstance, and he's working on your behalf. He's got the last word. Now, I don't know what that contrasting thing does to you, but it, it, it highlights the, the importance of what he's saying, even though some things are happening to him that might have questioned that. But he didn't question it. And I want to really encourage you, if you've got a, I call it a fogged up fatalistic resignation, you know, it's a, I'm sort of referring to the, um, uh, the illustration about the semaphores. But, you know, we, we can get this resignation that, Oh, well, you know, if Jesus died, I've, I've got to too, you know. And we're just wanting to get out of here. That's the only way out of our problem is to basically kind of surrender to it and then uh, get a martyr type, uh, a negative martyr type resignation in our mindsets, you know. But Peter is not writing to say it's all over. I'm sorry I'm shouting. I'm too excited by this. And so we come to the communion. The lamb stands. It's a semaphore. Jan van Eyck's icon in the Ghent Cathedral, he, um, it's an altarpiece. It's much wider than the one I've got represented here. But <laughs> it was in quite disrepair. It was, uh, you know, from the times of the, um, you know, go- going back into the, the great times of the, the masters um, before the Reformation and uh, re- in the Renaissance, he painted this. And in modern times, there was a discoloration and some crazing going on on the oil paints, on the wood, because it's painted onto an altarpiece. Okay. 
So they decided to restore it, which was a good thing. A couple of things they found when they restored it, restored it, restored the adoration of the Lamb by Jan van Eyck. They, they discovered, first of all, the brilliance of color. So it wasn't just somber. Now, it's a, it's a, it's a strange picture. You look at it and it's detailed, so it's all heavily symbolic and full of metaphor. But there's a living lamb standing on an altar with blood coming into a, a communion cup. And then there around him, if you get the full picture, are angels singing and worshiping. And then beyond that, there is the cross. But here's the other thing that they found when they restored this icon. The eyes of the lamb, and I won't show you this, it'll scare you, but the eyes of the lamb are humanoid. So when the actual parishioners came and saw this, they saw human eyes, not lamb's eyes around the side, but human eyes looking straight at them. And everything about this lamb is speaking of the very text that Glenn read to us last week. The lamb still stands, I'm telling you, as a semaphore of a complete message. That lamb is standing. He who was dead is now alive. His blood is still effective in dealing with your sin, in dealing with your failure, your shame. His blood is still effective in that he now stands on your behalf and he who was vindicated in the victory of his resurrection, exaltation, and ascension is now standing as your vindicator and mine. I probably need him more than you. Now, apostle, the Apostle Paul said in a kind of a revelatory moment, he said, Jesus showed me the meaning of this table. And he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. That's the price of the party. We've heard that before. But that's the half of the message that the rest, Paul, does unfold. But Peter unfolds it so well for us in our text this, this, today that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. You know, this does proclaim his death, but it also proclaims his resurrection. And we mustn't, we mustn't kind of go down the morbid route. It's not the morbid route that Jesus died and suffered, therefore we can only expect to die and suffer ourselves to get out of here. Because Jesus himself said, when he was giving this table, he said to this to his disciples, I can't wait to eat and drink with you this new in the kingdom of God. And guess what? Within a matter of days of that, three or, three or four days to be pretty much exact, he's sitting down having breaking bread with them, new with them, in the new creation, in the new beginning, in the new covenant, in the kingdom of God. So he was looking forward to the resurrection too. Another verse says that Jesus, for the joy that he suffered, went forward because of what's coming at the other end of the cross. 
This is this table. This is our communion this morning. I want to share communion. Can we take this right now? It's only half my message. The fog hasn't lifted for the bottom half of my notes yet. But this is a good half and an important half, as you can see. But let's take some bread. Let's take the cup. Because Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took the bread. He said, this is my body. He broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. And he put a table in the church, in the house of God. In spite of our many differences in how we relate to this table and practice this table, one of the unifying features of the Christian church is the table. I remember in the great charismatic conferences that we used to run in Sydney in the early 1970s, and a lot of Catholic charismatics came to our conferences, and we would always have a communion service on the Sunday of the conference. We did seven-day conferences. How about that? And they were huge. And so in these great celebrations, there would be nuns and priests, and we would invariably have a nun, a, a particularly a priest, um, help us with the table. But the point is the point. The table unified us, the Holy Spirit. We had a big banner over the back, of the back of the meeting, all one in Christ. Some years later, when the charismatic movement gained force within the Catholic Church, they began to run their own conferences. And when we did other conferences, in combining with them, they had their own communion, and all the Protestants had their, uh, their own communion. And, you know, it was like a little defeat of the purpose of the table as history crept up on us again and just... Poof. It's not really my point, but it's a good point. But this is a semaphore. This is a message coming in from the great battle of the ages. When the forces of darkness were seeking to invade and take over everything, spoil everything, and devastate everything. And a message has come through from the cross. And it looked like Jesus was defeated in the first half of the message. But not so in the second half. And so we pick up this body, this bread rather, and this cup, and let's share it together. Let's celebrate. Let's thank God for the vindication of Jesus, who's now our vindicator. Amen. Thank you, Lord. I don't know where that slide has is there with the text and Jesus has defeated the enemy there. It's about slide five or six or something. But I, uh, yeah, I kind of illustrated it on the slide this way to help us to see the passage of our text 
in its beginning and its end, where the first part of the message is the suffering, and the second part of the message is the triumphant Jesus. Thank you, Lord. So we take the cup in hand and we go, thank you, Lord, that you have triumphed over sin, death, and the devil. Thank you, Lord, that our vindication is in the blood. Thank you, Lord. Let's receive it. Our text has a curious coded thought around the number eight. Stick with me because we're going to glide to the end here with some little moments. But that's the necessary foundation for where we go here. But our text runs from that beginning before it reaches that great end as we've just celebrated here, it runs into these verses where it uses and illustrates the point with the story of Noah. And there's a curious kind of, well, I call it a coded thought around number eight here. I'll just read the text again, verse 20. The long-suffering of God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. We read the message version of that earlier on. Now, that would be an unnecessary detail. Nobody else makes the point of numbering the number of people that came out of the ark except Peter. Nobody else. I mean, it names them back in Genesis, but nobody makes the point of the number. Nobody else. Paul doesn't. Jesus didn't. Jesus mentioned about Noah. But nobody else does. But Peter does. And you kind of go, Pete. Now, look, look. You, you, you could dismiss it. But here's the reason why you really can't dismiss it as just an unnecessary detail, you know. Because... In the next epistle, 2 Peter 2 and verse 5, he uses Noah again as an illustration. And guess what? 2 Peter 2 verse 5, God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. So either Peter's hung up about eight, or he likes eight, or there's a coded and conveyed message in 8 that the readers and those who were in the early church understood this kind of coded language that we readily don't readily see so much ourselves. Now, you just got to consider the backstory, right? So Noah's 8, disembark the ark. I like that. Disembark the ark. The preacher of righteousness, that's what, we just read there, 2 Peter 2 and verse 5, he's called the preacher of righteousness. The preacher of righteousness builds an altar. And the first thing he does when he comes out of the ark is he builds an altar. And, and without going into the Genesis story of whatever it is, 7, 8, something like that, he, um, it says very specifically that he took of the clean animals. 
and sacrifice them to God. There's, there's something really just kind of you've got to kind of understand here. The law has not yet been given where it designated what was clean and unclean. And yet Noah, in some instinctive understanding of what's going on, sacrifices of the clean animals, you might say innocent blood, upon the altar. This very first altar in the whole of the Bible. It's prophesying. Because it doesn't tell us in Hebrews that the blood of bulls and goats and lambs only spoke forward of Christ. That the altar is in fact the cross. Or the very life that Jesus lived when he came as God into human flesh to head toward the cross. The innocent, as we've read, the righteous for the unrighteous. So here's Noah, a preacher of righteousness. That's what it's called here in 2 Peter 2 and verse 5. A preacher of righteousness. He builds an altar, sacrifices clean animals on it. Innocent blood is shed. God responds. And what does God do? God says, never again. <coughs> and he sets a rainbow in the, si in the sky as a sign of the covenant. A little, little point or two or three here. God was not relenting. God was not repenting. God was declaring never again. He's saying that through this blood, this innocent blood, this altar that's prophesying of the Lamb to come, never again will mankind need to face the judgment. He's securing a prophetic thought in that altar and sacrifice. Noah doesn't get it fully himself, <coughs> but he's preaching Christ. He's preaching the gospel. And God doesn't go, oh, Noah, I just want to relent now. I'll never do this again. Oh, God, that was terrible. No, I think there was probably speaking, you know, uh, hu human-wise, anthropomorphically of God, that he, that he probably, you know, went, <laughs> man, I don't like doing this. <coughs> Excuse me. Go away, devil, you're defeated. But this wasn't God pulling back from what he had done. <coughs> this is God saying, I'm on track to redeem, to rescue, to save. I'm on track for a new heaven and a new earth in which there will be the new creation believer. I've not lost the plot. This is God saying, in a sense, John 3, 16 and 17, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes on him would not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. This altar, by this man, this preacher of righteousness, this innocent blood is saying God doesn't come to condemn the world. He comes to save the world. And by saving Noah and his eight, 
He was saving the program of God to bring the full redemption and the full restoration of his creation. Just got to leave that there. You can make your own extrapolations and studies of that if you want to. <clears throat> but you see my coming back to my point, people, if this is not too big and too long and too much. <laughs> Looking at the clock. Peter did not write to tell us, you know, Jesus suffered, you know, and, and he went to heaven. Oh, well, so at the end of our suffering, you know, if we kind of make it to that little bunch uh, that really do believe and hang into the end, um, you know, we'll go to heaven too. And this whole thing's going to come under judgment, you know. You see, that's not Paul or Peter's message. Peter writes to encourage perseverance in which our own faith in this blood, in this resurrected Christ, that our own faithfulness to him will be vindicated. And eight souls were saved through water. <laughs> the flood saved them? We'll get back to that. But eight. I think I saw Brian make a comment a moment ago. But eight's the number of resurrection. Eight's the number of new beginning. Peter, Peter's code is there, that the people understood that eight is the new beginning day. Of course, you've got seven days in a week. But where did the seven days in the week begin? It began at the creation. God said there are six days. You know, your labor work on the, on the seventh day, you'll rest. And so the cycle begins on an eighth day or the first day of the new cycle. And so eight is the beginning of a new beginning. Now, oh, that doesn't sort of land too well. But it's also resurrection day. Jesus rose again on the first day of the week. It's resurrection day. There's much more to this than I want to go into. But... <clears throat> Eight days before he entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey, everybody celebrating him, and he goes into the temple and he presents himself. Guess what was happening on that very day? They were separating the lamb for the slaughter of the Passover, which was coming at the end of the week. And Jesus comes in in full enactment of the lamb presenting himself in the temple that he's without blemish. They didn't expect this, this beast. It had to be innocent, clean. And then he rises again three days later from the Friday evening, which is the beginning. The lamb had to be slaughtered before the full Sabbath came on because they couldn't go to work on the Sabbath. They had to rest. And as they were preparing the Passover, he was dying on the cross. And so on the eighth day, he rose again. It's mind-boggling. And then I mentioned earlier on, in my brilliance, stealing my own notes, that there are eight recorded incidents in the New Testament where after the resurrection, in what we call post-resurrection, appearances of Jesus. There's just eight of them. I don't know whether there was more or eight was enough. But there are eight recorded instances where Jesus shows himself that he's resurrected. I mean, 
Absolutely. So it all says one thing to us. Eight is the number of resurrection. Eight is the number of new creation. Eight is the number of the new beginning. Eight souls were saved through water is therefore a loaded statement to us. Yes, let's get a little pedantic here. Yes, it's God that saved them. Oh, yes, it's the blood that saved them. I'm not being trite. Yes, it was the ark that preserved them. But look, there's no need to be pedantic to adjust the semantic. I like that. I could have written a poem about this. We don't have to make this fit some important element of our theology because it's a proverbial. When he says eight people were saved, it's, it's proverbial. Eight people were saved. It's, he's saying vindicated. Noah was vindicated. <laughs> it's, it's proverbial of vindication. I'm sorry, I'm going to cry. I'm so excited by it. Peterson picks it up, and he writes it this way. Eight, to be exact. Saved from the water by the water. Eight, to be exact. Look, so it is that in whatever the dire circumstances you and I may face, through the victory of Christ, we can walk forward in faith and faithfulness, and it, those circumstances saved from the flood, or saved by the water from the flood sort of thing, those very circumstances God uses to lift us above and to lift us on in His purpose, because the salvation purpose was with Noah and the eight, when they came off the ark, did a sacrifice, had an altar, and proclaimed Christ to the generations. And look, I'm just telling you, I'm just telling you. Whatever you're going through, whatever dire flood, you know, that you and I might walk through, in the end, it's Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good for them that know, love God and are called according to His purpose. When we are aligned with Him, these things, whatever happens, <laughs> slapping us around, they're only being used by God in their ultimate end for the greater good. If we persevere as the faithful, if we persevere in faith. Now look, a funny thing happened to me. Huh. You know on the day we went down to check out the Beaumont Studios. So we're checking out for new digs for the church. And a funny thing happened. We're preparing to check out of, we've called this Crosstown. And my last message here was, now what? Build an altar. And I sort of held back that we were looking at the Beaumont Center in that message. I let, I let Glenn and Suze have the privilege of unfolding the revelation that they had seen as they were transported into heavens before the throne. Saw that colorful building with the colors of the rainbow. <laughs> But my message was based on, now what? Build an altar, based on the whole thought here of Noah's 8, disembarking the ark. Now, as if to confirm, now, please don't get horoscopic about this, and, oh, but, but, you know, as if to confirm the thought that the days of your vindication are at hand. You've got to know my heart's in this, our heart's in this, this journey, you know. And as we're stepping out here to go look somewhere else and, I turn and I find that there's a big banner just out here 
on that wall, and there's another one out here on that wall, on this very building, and they've re- the, 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 the new owners, the redevelopment is going to be called eight. I mean, heck! Now, like I said, I'm not horoscopic, you know, I'm not saying, you know, I don't read number plates and get guidance, but I, you know, whatever confirms is good. I feel like I'm saying, hey, you faithful in the long obedience in one direction. Worldwide flood of misfortune, pandemic, you know, months of leader attrition, um, you know, folks leaving, and, and, and now the yielding of Crosstown, notwithstanding the days of your vindication, with a big eight in the word, are at hand. Do you get this? Or am I just your nutty old preacher? It's time to retire him. But the days of your vindication are at hand. Can you see the eight? You're all going to go. That's the first thing you're going to do when you leave the building, is it? You're going to photograph that thing? Well, good. So don't pick up your marbles and go home. Don't forfeit the gains that we've made over the years. The mission is not yet over. That's what I got out of that. So know this, folks. You will be vindicated for staying the course. Christ was vindicated and is now our vindicator. And the testimony of Noah, the righteous preacher, says you and I will be too. The task now is to establish our altar of worship in another venue as our salvation celebration place of communion and love with Jesus and each other and to reiterate our mission to the city. I could think of another one of those play on words. You know, he says to Noah and the eight, after he puts the rainbow up and all this, God says, he says, now go forth and multiply. The mandate, the man eight, is to propo eight. Sorry, I'm playing the words again. But the mandate is still there. Go into all the world, preach the gospel, and make disciples of all flesh, you know, of everybody you can. And so as we let go of Crosstown, we disembark the ark to go across town, build an altar, altar, and get on with it. How is that for a little kick up the side as I'm leaving the building the other day? So here's what I want to do. Would you stand with me? I'm going to do one of those, would you stand with me and then preach the next part of my sermon, which is, no, 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 no. Yeah, listen to this. You know, I, I, when I say don't pick up your mar- marbles and go home, you know, I mean, honestly, nothing's over. Nothing's finished. We're just progressing. We've got faith and faithfulness pushing on in the purpose. And with Peter's encouragement, we're going to persevere and lean in on the The Christ who is resurrected. The Christ who is, has ascended and is now exalted. Who has the last word. This is why I just go, la, 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 when anybody starts to sort of say, on the journey. I go, man, you, you wouldn't last two minutes in Afghanistan. 
You wouldn't last two minutes in Iran. You wouldn't last two minutes in the back blocks of China where they're hounding you down for a house church. But I say to the faithful of those in faith, persevere. Because it's not just in your struggles to get there. It's that He is up there standing. He's not, like Glenn said, He's not dead and lying down. Thanks for listening to the C3V podcast. To find out more about our church, visit us at c3v.ca.